Good evening. I have identified 10 of the major and important future events of biblical prophecy that I would like to present in a series of messages that I am creatively calling future events. And I began last week with the first of those future events. If you were here last Sunday morning, and the first of those future events was the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the occasion in which Jesus Christ will return to gather his church, his bride, New Testament believers who are in Christ. And that event is referenced in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 53, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, a familiar passage, you remember it well, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. It is my conviction from the scripture that the rapture of the church is the next event to occur in the Bible's eschatological calendar. It's my conviction that the rapture of the church will occur before the great tribulation period prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 and then described in Matthew chapter 24 and of course in the book of Revelation, there is nothing that must be fulfilled before Jesus returns to rapture the church. It could be today. And that is the blessed hope, the surety, the confidence of the believer. So then what happens when the New Testament believer, the bride of Christ, the church is raptured, caught up and away in that moment. Where do we go? And what do we do? And what happens while the wrath of God falls upon the earth in the tribulation? The next future event is, number two, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. And we could go in the scripture to... Places like Romans chapter 14, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This evening, I would invite you to take your copy of the scripture and turn with me there to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, 2 Corinthians 5, where we will look at the second future event, the first being the rapture of the church, the second now, the judgment seat of Christ. Let me pause briefly for prayer, and then we'll look at the scripture. God in heaven, we thank you that you are the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, that you are completely sovereign over the affairs of man, past, present, and future. And God, as we study the scripture and we read in the pages of the Old Testament and we read in the pages of the New Testament, we understand that you have a plan, a purpose, and a plan. I pray, God, that your spirit would give us insight and understanding now as we study that plan and that we might prepare for it, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our study of the judgment seat of Christ, specifically from 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 10, I want to compare and contrast two future events that are often confused 
and conflated. And at times, people misunderstand the difference between the judgment seat of Christ, our subject and theme this evening, with the great white throne judgment much later to come. And for our purposes this evening, I've prepared a chart, provided a chart that demonstrates the differences between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. It's there for you on the back of your notes. It's projected there on the screen. What are the key scripture texts? For the judgment seat of Christ, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll look at those this evening. While the great white throne judgment is described in Revelation 20, it's referenced in Hebrews 9. Who is judged? The judgment seat of Christ, it's believers. The great white throne, it is unbelievers. Who judges? In both cases, Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. The purpose of the judgment is different. The judgment seat of Christ is to reward faithful believers. The great white throne is to condemn unbelievers. When will it occur? The judgment seat of Christ after the rapture. The church has been raptured where Christ has caught us up together in the clouds to be with him forever. The great white throne at the end of the millennial kingdom. What is the criteria? Faithful belief. What is the criteria for the great white throne? Unbelief. The results at the judgment seat, uh, and, and let me advance this, the results for the judgment seat, good works will be rewarded. And for the great white throne judgment, eternal, eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Will there be equal treatment on each occasion? Each believer will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ relative to their works. Some will be rewarded in greater ways. At the great white throne judgment, each unbeliever will be condemned relative to their works. It appears that there is some greater consequence for some. Will it be just, a just judgment? This might catch you by surprise. The judgment seat of Christ will not be just in this way. Believers stand blameless because of Christ's righteousness and not their own. It is just in that Christ's righteousness is applied to us. The great white throne judgment will be just. Also, unbelievers stand guilty because of their sin, receive their due. What should I do now? This is the practical application. As we look to the future, future events, we should serve God faithfully so that we can hear at the judgment seat, well done, good and faithful servants. The great white throne judgment prepare. If one is unbelieving, repent of that unbelief and believe. And so with these things in mind, I would point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for a fuller understanding of the judgment seat of Christ, the second future event as we look forward in the eschatological calendar of biblical prophecy. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 10 says, for or therefore, stop there. We must consider the context and catch up with the context. Go back to verse number 1, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent or tabernacle, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, this tabernacle, this body of flesh... We who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, as a seal. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, in this tent, 
We are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body, this tent, and to be present with the Lord. The Bible is teaching us that upon our death, our immaterial is separated from our material, and as believers, we are immediately in the presence of the Lord. However, at the rapture of the church, as we learned last week, we are then given glorified bodies, incorruptible, immortal, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 30, 53 tells us, and then we stand before the judgment seat of, of Christ. But here's the good news. The judgment seat of Christ is not a place of condemnation judgment. Romans 8 verse 1 says there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. New Testament believer, the church. But rather the judgment seat of Christ is a place of commendation judgment. Not condemnation, but commendation. It's a place of reward, an occasion for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And the judgment seat of Christ that Paul declares then in verse number 10 is literally the bema seat. The bema seat was the place at the ancient Grecian games in the Isthmian games where, where athletes were rewarded for winning their races. And the bema seat was like the medal podium of our modern Olympic games where the winners are crowned or rewarded or awarded for playing by the, the rules. And there the judges distribute the awards. The bema seat was, was not a place of penalty, but a place of, of reward. And any athlete, whether ancient or modern, aspires aspired to be in that place of reward, of award, to receive that crown. In verse number 9, Paul puts it this way, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, in this mortal body or apart from this mortal body, in the presence of Jesus or not yet in the presence of Jesus. This is our aim, verse number Nine, to be well-pleasing to him, so that we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant at the Bema Seat judgment. The King James Version there says, wherefore we labor. The Pastor Matt translation might read, we are ambitious. And the Greek text speaks of the, the aspiration to, to be something and the eagerness or the earnestness to do something. It, it points toward a goal, and that great goal is to be well-pleasing to our Lord. I would give you, number one, a great goal. Now, it is common for us to declare our purpose or life mission as believers, we live to the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. With the psalmist, we say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. But practically, how is this fleshed out in our Christian lives? How do we live our lives faithfully as servants of the Lord today so that when we stand at that bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, we can hear those words, well done. And this is often the time now when the preacher condemns every area of worldly recreation and entertainment. This is when the preacher calls the people to separate from the world, a worldly life and lifestyle. This is when the preacher says, you can't love God and love the world. The preacher says, don't drink, smoke, chew. Go with girls that do. It's been a long time since I've said that, right? This is when the preacher inserts 
all of the, the exhortation and the condemnation regarding that life and lifestyle, but let me give you a better answer by asking a better question. How does a child please his or her parents? How does a servant please his or her master? And the answer is by obeying. Simple yet profound obedience. And I suggest to you that simple obedience is the practical way. If it is your aim, verse number nine, if it is your aim to be well-pleasing to the Lord, then obey the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's a, a matter of obedience and a great goal for your life, Christian, is to please the Lord by living in obedience to him so that when you stand before him at that beam of seat judgment, that reward or award ceremony, the judgment seat of Christ, you can hear him say, well done. Look at verse number nine again, and let me comment on the phrase there in the middle, whether present or, or absence. I, I call this, number two, a definite devotion. In verses one through eight, we read them just a moment ago, Paul expressed his homesickness for heaven while he was at home in the body, his tent, his tabernacle. He was absent from the Lord. But someday he would be absent from the body and he would be present with the Lord. In verse number nine, I believe, just continues that stream of thought and allows for, for either possibility. The NIV, perhaps you're carrying that. It translates it this way, whether we at, are at home in the body or away from it. And so Paul extended his ambition to please the Lord, that great goal, by removing any of the boundaries, any limits, or any constraints, whether we're here or there or anywhere. His ambition was to please the Lord, and I call that a definite devotion. Let me illustrate once again by referencing the idea of, of obedience. It's one thing for a child to obey his or her mom and dad when mom and dad are, are watching. In fact, a child might even say, look, mommy and daddy, look what I have done or look what I am doing. However, when the parent leaves the room, <laughs> it takes a little extra effort for that boy or girl to obey a little extra character and commitment, devotion to that matter of obedience. If it's one thing uh, to run hard when the coach is watching. But when the coach turns his back, that's a great chance to relax. Whatever the conditioning drill may be, push-ups or sprints or such, it takes extra devotion, character and commitment to that obedience when the coach is not walking or watching. It is one thing to sit up straight and quiet in class while the teacher is looking at you, but when the teacher steps out of the classroom, it takes a definite devotion on the part of the student to obey the class rules. And Paul's devotion was so definite, he determined to please the Lord in obedience regardless of where he was or who was watching. And folks, when we get to heaven clothed in our glorified resurrection bodies surrounding the throne of God, present with the Lord, pleasing God will be easy. After all, it's, it's, it's heaven. Obedience will be a given. But what about now? We live 
on this sin-cursed earth and we're part of a wicked generation and we have a body of flesh and sometimes it seems that God is a million miles away, that he doesn't see, he doesn't know, and it's not always so easy to, to please him in those moments for the door is shut. We're alone, we're by ourselves, in our home. But if we have a definite devotion to our Lord, we will be mindful no matter where we are no matter what the cost, to please him above all else. That was Paul's burden in verse number 9. But there's another thing in in verse number 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I call this number 3 a major motivation. A major motivation, and the major motivation driving Paul's ambition was the expectation of standing before God and giving an account at the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ, for what he has said and done. Now, remember that the judgment seat of Christ is not an occasion for condemnation judgment. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, but it, it is a time and place for commendation judgment, reward. And Paul was legitimately motivated to hear his Lord say, well done, as illustrated in Jesus' parable of the, of the talents. So what will happen then and there as believers, the bride of Christ, the New Testament church, being raptured up to be with the Lord, we stand before him at that bema seat judgment. What will happen? It will be letter A, a time of revelation. A time of revelation. And I would invite you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3 quickly. 1 Corinthians 3 verse number 11. Paul says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on this foundation, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 12, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. The test is the crucible of fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is, whether, verse number 12, it is gold, silver, precious stones, or the end of verse number 12, wood, hay, and and straw or, or stubble. And 1 Corinthians 3 teaches us that the day, the judgment day, our works will be made known and become clear as we stand before God, the test of fire, revealing the substance of our works. It'll be a time of of revelation. Secondly, it will be a time of reward. You're still in 1 Corinthians 3. Look up to the end of verse number 8. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Look at verse number 14, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 14. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, it must be a precious stone or a precious metal, he will receive a reward. And the rewards will be crowns. Crowns given at the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, just as were given in the ancient Isthmian games in Greece. And there are two categories of crowns that are that are identified in the Bible. The the first is the diadema crown. That's the kingly crown that represents royalty and authority. And that crown is reserved, of course, for Jesus Christ. But then there's a second category of crown called the Stephanus crown. And that was the crown of victory given at those Grecian Olympic games. And the scripture tells us of five different Stephanus crowns that will be awarded to believers. I'll give these to you just quickly there in your notes. The first will be the crown of life. 
It's also called the martyr's crown. You see the scripture references there. The crown of life is promised to believers who endure testings and trials and temptations, being faithful even if it leads to death. The crown of life. Secondly, the crown of glory. This is sometimes called the the pastor's crown. It's promised to elders who faithfully shepherd the flock of God. There is the crown of rejoicing. This is also called the soul winner's crown. And the crown of rejoicing is promised to the one who has introduced people to Jesus Christ, who's discipled them to spiritual maturity. Continuing then, number four, there is the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness is for those who love his appearing. The believers who have faithfully waited and looked for the return of of Jesus, who, who love his appearing. And then there's number five, there's the incorruptible crown or the victor's crown. And this is the crown, the reward, the award that is promised to the one who exercises self-control in the service of the Lord. And, and you can look at those scripture texts and study uh, those crowns. But, but folks, simply put, the, the faithful belief and obedience that we exercise in this life will be rewarded when we stand before Jesus Christ in that day. We will be given crowns. And it was the Apostle Paul's aspiration, his goal, and his motivation, and his devotion to receive these rewards. Now, what will we do with these crowns? They won't go on a trophy shelf, or they won't go on the mantle in your mansion We will cast them back at the feet of Jesus according to Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11, and we will declare that Jesus is worthy to receive all the glory and the honor and the power. Why? Because those crowns or rewards that may be given to us were only because of God's grace through his spirit empowering us in this life to serve him. And we will cast those crowns back. You say, okay, pastor, um... What if I don't receive any rewards or crowns? I'm not a pastor. I've never led anyone to the Lord. What if I am left wanting? I would submit to you, if you look at verse number 15, if anyone's work is burned, it's consumed with that, that test of fire, he will suffer loss, not a loss of salvation, You see it there, but a loss of reward. I submit that it will, let her see, it will be a time of regrets. There will be regrets at the Bema Seat Judgment, the Judgment Seat of Christ. I would offer you this. When I stand at the Judgment Seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way and I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. You can read disobedient there. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes, grief though he loves me still? He would have me rich and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace. While memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears I cannot shed. I shall cover my face with my empty hands. I shall bow my uncrowned head. Lord, 
of the years that are left to me. I give them to thy hand. Take me and break me. Mold me to the pattern thou hast planned. If I might cite 1 John 2 verse 28, may we not be ashamed at his coming, but prepare even now with that same aspiration to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Finally, we're nearly, nearly done. It'll be a time of, of rejoicing. The Bema Seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ for the church will be a time of rejoicing first with the saints. And Paul was prepared to rejoice because the Thessalonians have given you 1 Thessalonians 2.19 they would be there with him. And he says this, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? And it, was, it will be there. That great reunion will take place when we recognize the New Testament believers from these 2,000 years across all of the nations of the world there, and we will rejoice with the saints, and then we will rejoice, number two, with the Savior. Titus 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we look to the future, any moment, even today, Jesus could return to rapture his church to be with him forever. And upon that occasion, we then stand at that great Bema seat, judgment seat of Christ to be judged, not condemnation, but commendation, to be rewarded for faithful obedience and belief. We have the opportunity, folks, today, tomorrow, as long as the Lord should tarry, the span of our lifetime today ought to be the aim, the goal, the devotion, the motivation to find ourselves well-pleasing to him. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, it's our desire that you come quickly, but Lord, we, we shrink away in holy fear at that prospect because perhaps we have not served you faithfully. We have not obeyed you consistently. We have not made our life mission to be pleasing to you in every matter. Lord, it's our desire to be rewarded with crowns that we can return, casting them back at your feet for you alone are worthy. And so, Lord, take our lives and let them be consecrated to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.